0: Well, good morning, Grumlaw family. We are so excited that all of you have decided to join us here today. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, and by the way, would encourage you to bring those with you each week, uh, we have free Bibles up for grabs every single week uh, at Grumlaw Central, uh, both in Grand Blanc as well as in Heartland. Uh, you can go and just take one of those. like They are totally up for grabs and in, in a translation, specifically the New Living Translation, that is just really, really easy to read and understand. Uh, but if you have your Bible with you this morning, uh, you can go ahead and jump over to Romans chapter 13. This is Paul's early letter to the Christian church in Rome. Uh, That is where we're going to be hanging out here today. Uh, We are, uh, as most of you are well aware, and in fact it's actually why a good number of you are here today, uh, we're in a series right now titled Controversial Jesus. A a series where we're walking through some topics, topics like abortion, the transgender movement, the gay community, gender roles, and bunch of others uh, that are in so many ways defining this cultural moment. Uh, but rather than asking the question, what do I think about this? Instead, we're, we're asking the question, what does God say about this? Uh, because here's what we all know. Uh, society and, and culture gets it wrong often. Y- you and I get it wrong often. So, so what we all desperately need is a filter outside of culture by which we can navigate the desires of our hearts, decipher between lies and truth, to figure out what is right and, and what is wrong. If you don't have that filter, you will always become a slave to whatever society tells you to believe. Now, the filter that we would advocate for around here is, is this text called the, the Bible. It is a manual for this life. It's a gift given to us that is the imperfect creation from God, our our perfect creator. And and when you follow it, it leads to a life marked by joy and peace and and contentment, something that we are all, in fact, universally searching for. And and I want you to think about that for a moment. God chose to give you this gift because he loves you that much. He, He is trying to help you succeed. He's trying to make your life better and and make you better at at life. So so in that way, God doesn't give commands because he loves rules. No, God gives commands because he he loves you. Just like any loving father, he's simply trying to protect his kids. And and so the question that we've been asking is, what does this loving father have to say on these topics? What, What type of loving counsel does God offer to his children? That that's what we are exploring now. If you haven't been here for the entirety of the series, you can always get yourself caught up at grumlaw.com/messages, or you can find us under Grumlaw Church wherever it is that you grab your podcast. Uh, I would especially recommend at least going back and listening to part one, uh, which lays the groundwork in a lot more detail than what I just briefly offered. Uh, lays the groundwork for for why God led us to dive headfirst into these topics, and it's because of the hot button nature of these topics that we're utilizing video teaching in a way uh, that we have never done before. And so if you are watching this uh, sermon right now via video, uh, we just want to let you know that this is not a lane that we're going to be running in like for forever. In fact, live teaching is kind of the avenue that we have chosen to go in as a church, but rather uh, we are doing this uh, as a concession for this series because of the hot button nature of these topics and the feeling of leadership was like, hey, uh, we feel like these topics are best to be addressed by the lead pastor, which happens to be me. Uh, But as soon as this series concludes, we'll be right back to to live teaching. And again, I just want to say thank you. I have literally not heard a single complaint in that area. It it would seem that all of you understand why we decided to run in that lane for the sake of this series. Now, the title of today's message, and again, we still got some more controversy for you. uh, The title of today's message is Jesus and Politics, Uh, a message that admittedly, uh, it feels a heck of a lot more controversial today than it did back, let's just say, in early 2020. Now, if I can just kind of ease all of your minds right here on the front end, uh, in this message, I will not be telling you who to vote for, uh, which side of the political aisle to stand in, nor will I accuse any presidential candidates, past or present, of being the Antichrist. Some of you, some of you seem a little bummed out by that. All right, anyway, rather, as we have done throughout this series, we're going to appeal to the scriptures as our guide and, and allow God to guide our steps. Fair enough? So with that in mind, uh, I'm going to have you repeat something after me right now, and we've done this actually a couple times in this series. All right, here we go. I would rather my pastor tell me what is true than what I want to hear. One more time, like we really, really mean it. I would rather my pastor tell me what is true than what I want to hear. Now, that is especially important today as we explore what Jesus has to say again in the arena of politics. Now, over the last seven plus years, we have seen a historic rise in what has been dubbed Christian nationalism. Uh, Admittedly, Christian nationalism makes today's topic even that much more sensitive. And admittedly, I do not have time to thoroughly unpack this topic of Christian nationalism this morning, uh, but here would be a clear, succinct definition for this term. It it is a cultural framework that blurs distinctions between Christian identity and American identity, viewing the two as closely related and seeking to enhance and preserve their union. In short, the Christian faith through Christian nationalism has become deeply intertwined with patriotism. Now, quick disclaimer, uh, there is nothing wrong with patriotism in and of itself. It is okay, in some cases even healthy, uh, to have a devotion to one's country. Even though this cultural moment, and I have not been shy about admitting this, even though this cultural moment appears to be a bit of a hot mess, I still believe that we live in the greatest country on the planet. I love the United States of America. But but where we have seen evangelical Christians drift over the last seven plus years in particular is how deeply intertwined one's faith can become with pride in the country but placing faith in political leaders at nearly as high of a level as God himself. I'll just say it very plainly. It's been a little alarming to watch such a large swath of right-wing evangelicals treat a Republican presidential candidate as if he is the second coming of Christ. Now now again, I I don't mean that to be a jab, uh, nor an endorsement of a political candidate. I'm merely trying to help us understand how pervasive this has become. How politically charged the local churches become in large portions of our nation. Now, admittedly, uh, this is probably the area where I have felt the most pressure over the last couple of years as I pastor this church, and in particular to speak to this. Uh, Many people have left this church uh, because I will not endorse uh, nor condemn certain political candidates from this stage. Uh, It's a common question that I get from people who are new to this church. They want to know come election season who Grumlaw will side with, and when I tell them uh, that we will not be encouraging those who call this place their church home to vote for a certain candidate, instead rather to pray and vote according to their consciences, uh, they often get rather frustrated with me and choose to attend a different church. Uh, no skin off my back, by the way. I am happy to point them to some local churches that ring that Christian nationalism flag loud and, and proud. Now, from my vantage point, uh, the two biggest concerns that I have with this movement uh, are, are these. Number one, uh, Christian nationalism reduces Jesus to a political leader rather than our Lord and Savior. Intentional or not, the lines between political candidates and Jesus himself get muddied when politics becomes such a dominant point of conversation in the local church. It's the sentiment of, if the Republican party ain't winning, Jesus ain't winning. Church, that is a travesty. Jesus can stand just fine on his two blood-stained feet. Let us remember, we are on the winning side. Death has already been defeated. Jesus has already declared victory when he rose from the grave. Jesus, just to make this very clear, does not need the help of any political candidate. And then number two, the second issue that I see with Christian nationalism is that Christian nationalism treats those on the opposite side of the political aisle as an enemy to be defeated. And we end up using the world's tactics to fight the world's battles. We end up being at odds with the world rather than showing the love of Jesus to a world that so desperately needs him. Rather than being a people marked by grace and gentleness and patience, we become a people who are marked by our judgmental attitudes and arrogance and abrasiveness. A people who, oh, by the way tend to look a lot more like the religious elite in the scriptures, the only people whom Jesus particularly took issue with during his time on this earth. So it begs the question, uh, what type of loving counsel does God offer to us in his living, breathing word? And I am i am so glad you asked. Again, we are going to jump to Romans chapter 13 this morning, and I'll warn you, it, it hits pretty hard. Uh, here it is written for us, Everyone must submit... To governing authorities. One more time. Everyone must submit to governing authorities. For all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. Now, now notice what Paul says here. He again uses this term everyone. Not some of us, not some people, but again, everyone. Meaning, as soon as you think that you are an exception to this as a follower of Jesus, remind yourself that you are very much in everyone. This would also be a great time to point out that when Paul wrote this, not a single one of the governing authorities were Christian. So so spare me the, hey, he would have never wrote that today argument. Continue to verses two and three. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. For, for the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Yeah. Do what is right, and they will honor you. Now, Paul was clearly speaking in a general sense right here. He wasn't indicating that there were no exceptions to this, but but you can follow the logic, right? If you don't want to be afraid or fear the government, just, just do what's right. Come on, why does your heart sink when you see the flash of police lights in your rearview mirror? Is it because you were driving the speed limit? Or perhaps you were going a little bit faster than what was advised. Verses four and five. The authorities are God's servants sent for your good. But, but, but if you are doing wrong, of course you should be afraid for, for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants. He doubles down on that. Sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So you must submit to them not only to avoid punishment, but this is really important, but also to keep a clear conscience. In in other words, we submit to these authorities not just because they have the ability to punish us or because we might get in trouble. No, we do so because we recognize that those in authority are God's servants. And so defy them and you defy God. It's also worth noting, and we covered this back in our True Virtue series and specifically the week where we talked about honor and a cancel culture, that those in governing authority are not the only ones whom we are encouraged to submit to. Uh, Children, for instance, are called to obey their parents as unto the Lord, employees to their employers, the church body to their elders, to their pastors. Just saying. Okay, continue. Verse six, pay your taxes too for these same reasons. For for government workers need to be paid. They are serving God in what they do. Now we tend to, uh, as Americans in particular, focus on the controversial tasks that those in governmental authority partake in. But, but Paul is reminding us that the vast majority of those in this line of work, whether it be the president of the United States or the social worker, uh, is work that we ought to be grateful for. And in that vein, and admittedly, this is a bit outside the norm for me. Uh, if you are employed by the government in any form, whether you be a first responder, law enforcement, military, social worker, teacher, elected representatives, you work for an elected representative, if you work for the government in any form, will you stand up right now? I know it feels a little weird maybe uh, taking instructions from a guy on the screen, but seriously, stand up right now. Come on, stand up. Grumlauch Church, can we thank and honor these individuals right now? And I want you right now to stay standing, Uh, and I want to do what what Paul asks us to do in another place in Scripture and uh, and pray for you right now. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have called these individuals uh, for such a time as this. I pray in particular that you would give these people uh, a perseverance. Uh, So often these roles, um, you don't get a lot of praise and you just get a lot of criticism. And uh, I pray, God, that you would renew that calling that you have placed on their lives right now, that there would be a peace um, and a, an effortlessness that, that as they walk into this coming week, trusting and knowing Uh, that they do not go at this alone, but that the God of the universe goes with them, before them, and after them. Uh, We love you, Jesus. We pray that there would be a great responsibility that comes along with this as well, Um, that they wouldn't just be making decisions in accordance with what sounds right to them, but again, uh, in accordance with Holy Spirit, how you are guiding them. We we thank you uh, for again calling these individuals to this place for this time in history, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's uh, give it up for them one more time. Very good. Uh, we continue in verse 7. It says, give to everyone what you owe them, uh, pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them, and give respect and honor, key words there, respect and honor to those who are in authority. Now, if you read Paul's letter to the church in Rome, uh, admittedly, these seven verses do kind of feel like they're out of left field. And, and so it's reasonable to ask the question, it's like, okay, why, why did Paul include this, like, this, like, this political rant? And I believe that there are three reasons uh, as we look to the broader context of this passage. Number one, this is an application of Paul's instruction to leave vengeance to God, uh, which we find in verse 19 from the previous chapter. So again, if you rewind back to chapter 12, uh, and by the way, the entire book of Romans, it hits pretty hard. Uh, This passage is hardly the outlier. Uh, But back in chapter 12, Paul reminds us to never take vengeance into our own hands, but rather to leave that to God. In, In other words, he has it all under control. And one of the ways that God executes vengeance on this earth is through governmental authority. Now, this is obviously not the only way, nor does it imply that governments always get it right. But governments are one way that God executes judgment on his behalf. And again, I'll remind us, when Paul wrote this, none of those in government were were, were Christians. Number two, for the first century church, one of the primary places they would have had to overcome evil with good would have been in their relationship with governing authorities. Uh, It's one of the most popular passages in all of Scripture. Again, he's hearkening back here to verse 21. Uh, So popular, in fact, that it was turned into a song. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's right, I I grew up in one of those churches. Uh, This is, in so many ways, one of the defining marks of the follower of Jesus, overcoming evil with good. Rather than repaying evil with more evil, we rather follow the example of our blood-stained Savior who would freely offer himself on a cross for sinners, that is, you and I. He, He would quite literally repay evil with good. Many of those inflicting harm and evil onto the Christians in the first century happen to be the governing authorities. And the prescribed way to, to overcome them, well, Paul tells us, submit, honor them, obey them even when you do not feel that they deserve it. As much as you can, this harkens back to verse 18 in chapter 12, we are called as followers of Jesus to live at peace with everyone in a manner that doesn't disobey or disavow God. Uh, We'll have more on that here in just a minute. And and then the third reason that I believe uh, Paul includes this in here is that Paul expected Caesar to read this letter, so Paul wants to make it clear that his intentions are not to overthrow the government. One of the primary goals of most world religions is to remove existing governments and to replace said government with those who ascribe to that religion. And and my goodness, is that ever on profound display in our world right now. And, And this has been going on throughout human history. Jesus, though, made it abundantly clear that this was not his intention with his church. Followers of Jesus, rather, are called to offer their lives for their enemies rather than take the lives of their enemies, just as he did, again, for each of us. Our role as Christians is not to overthrow human governments, but to influence human governments, to to be salt and light in this world. We are called to live like Daniel lived in Babylon. But By the way, uh, if any of this, uh, this, this sermon is, is striking a chord this morning, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that series where we explored the life of Daniel, specifically the book of Daniel. Uh, it was a series called Thriving in Babylon. It, it, it is the playbook for, for how to not just survive, but but thrive in our broken secular world. This is different than the sentiment of Christian nationalism, which says to bring in God's rule with themselves as the rulers. Now, can I nerd out for, for just a quick minute? This should be interesting to at least like 12 of you. Uh, the late John Stott, one of the most notable Christian scholars of the previous century, he, he notes that there are four ways that Christians relate to the government. Uh, and quick spoiler alert, uh, three of them are wrong and, and one is right. Uh, The first is a theocracy, in in which the church controls the state. Uh, Think places like Saudi Arabia. It it always leads to disaster, and take note again what what is happening right now in the Middle East. Uh, The second is Erastianism, in which the state controls the church. Uh, Think places like Russia or or China, where the government controls basically everything. Uh, Equally bad, and there's certainly a good case to make that it's uh, actually worst. Uh, The next one is Constantinianism. It's a compromise in which the state favors the church, and the church makes accommodations with the state in order to preserve favored status. Uh, Old Europe would probably be the most notable example in this category, and again, it it never goes well. Uh, And then the last, and this is the one where we go ding, 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 that's that's the one we're looking to, is partnership. It's the church and the state recognize that each have distinct God-given responsibilities, and and they encourage and collaborate with each other in fulfilling these roles. This is what Paul is advocating for here in this passage. Paul wants Caesar to be certain that he is not coming as a political agitator, but rather as a missionary. And he wants the Roman Christians to understand that their role is to influence their government, not to overthrow it. That's why I believe Paul included this passage in his letter to the Christians living in Rome. Uh, and here are the two responsibilities for all of us. We're on the home stretch. Uh, number one, the responsibilities of those who govern. This is the job description of, of the government. Now, to be very clear, uh, this is not the main point of this passage. Uh, rather, the main point is number two, the responsibilities of the governed. Now, I've already made mention of this, but I will elaborate uh, further now. When Paul wrote these things, when he gave us this teaching, none of the authorities were Christian. At best, they were unfriendly, and at worst, they were downright hostile towards the Christian church. Now, the biggest piece of pushback uh, that I will inevitably receive to a message like this, so you can go ahead and just save your thumbs and save your uh, little fingers from typing this out. I'll just beat you to it. Uh, The biggest piece of pushback uh, that I will receive is how am I supposed to bestow honor to a political leader when I don't approve of him, when I don't even respect her? I I can tell you quite confidently that Paul would not have approved of or endorsed the vast majority of what the governing leaders of his day did. And had there been a free election, he likely would not have voted for a single one of them. Let me speak very freely for a moment. Uh, The majority, we, we can call attention to this, the majority of the people in this room are probably not thrilled with our current commander in chief. And, and, and I can understand that, but, but I would ask you to consider Caligula, who, who was Caesar at this time when Paul penned this. Let's explore some of Caligula's accomplishments. Uh, almost immediately after being put in charge, he had his brother and mother killed to make sure uh, that they wouldn't be able to challenge his right to the throne. He, he openly committed incest with three of his sisters. He, he frequently cross-dressed and would go out in public he installed this is not a joke he installed his favorite horse as a senator and he later promoted that horse to pro council which begs the question like what what did that horse do to receive said promotion i mean that must have been that must have been a heck of a horse now y'all are laughing right now but but i have seen how some of you treat your dogs just, just saying, I better move on before I get myself in trouble. He, he once got mad. This is, again, true story. He once got mad <laughs> at the weather and officially declared war against neptune the god of the sea and he would order roman battalions to go out into the sea and whip the waves with their swords and they would bring back shells and other things from the sea uh, as like a form of like booty saying like hey look at we we won uh, he had the heads of statues of roman deities removed and replaced with his own so everywhere you went there there was caligula Uh, From there, the throne would go to a guy named Claudius, a loon in his own right. And then to there, it would go to Nero, who would become, if you know anything about uh, church history, uh, he would become one of the most sadistic Christian killers of all time. Uh, Most of his exploits, I couldn't even say from this stage because they are so heinous. Uh, One of his common practices is that when he would throw parties in his courtyard, he would light the courtyards at night by burning Christians alive at the stake. And so it is into this context that Paul says, again, these words, everyone must submit to governing authorities. I mean, I just can't honor a political leader who I don't respect as a person and whose policies I don't approve of. Respectfully, Paul would tell you to get over yourself. So again, back to the responsibilities of those who govern. Number one, uh, they're called to punish the bad. Again, in verse four, it says, they are God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. When the government fulfills this responsibility, they do it in God's name, whether they are Christian or not. And and, and similarly, when governments allow injustice to thrive, they fail at their God-given job, their God-given responsibility, and we are told that they will have to give account for that. In addition to punishing the bad, uh, the responsibilities of those who govern lies in promoting the good. Uh, Verse 4, again, says the authorities are God's servants sent for your good. That is you and I. Uh, Those who govern are called to promote the general welfare of their citizens. And again, we're reminded that those in authority will be held accountable for this. So you and I, we don't need to feel the need to take vengeance uh, or accountability into our own hands. We are assured that God, again, has that very much under control. And then number two, again, the responsibilities of the governed. Uh, Our our first responsibility is to submit. Again, verse five says, so so you must submit to them not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. We submit as a matter of conscience, not merely to avoid punishment. Or, Or let me put it this way. You obey whether you think you will get caught or not. As Paul squarely points out, when you lie, when you cheat, when you disobey the government, you are doing so unto God. Now, th- there is a, a, a big caveat that must be mentioned right here. And some of you, you have been like ready to head for the door waiting to see if I would throw this disclaimer out at this point. That the government's rule is not absolute in our lives. When we submit to government, it's a way of submitting to God. So track with me here. Which means that if obeying government leaders ever causes you to disobey an explicit command given by God, we are bound to practice civil disobedience. Ultimate authority rests in God, not men. Again, I will call to mind the example of Daniel. There were many times when Daniel would compromise. For instance, you might recall when he goes to King Nebuchadnezzar and he respectfully asks, hey, can I eat this different food than what you are asking everyone else to eat? And then there's the more glaring example when he and his buddies refused to bow down to an idol because that would violate an explicit command given to us in scripture. So so we can put it this way, if the state commands what God forbids, or if the state forbids what God commands, then civil disobedience is a Christian duty. But let me say, oftentimes I will hear Christians drawing lines in the sand that God never drew. And, And this is really, really important, church. You can disagree without dishonoring. And again, I will call attention to our buddy, Daniel. As followers of Jesus, we have to stop using the world's tactics to fight the world's battles. Uh, Those who are being governed are also called to honor. Again, verse seven, it says, give respect and honor to those who are in authority. Uh, Real real question, church. Uh, When you speak, or maybe more appropriately stated, when you post about President Biden, do you do so in a way that conveys honor and respect? Democrats in the room, when you speak of President Trump, do you do so in a way that conveys honor and respect? Nowhere in scripture, and again, I'm talking to the Christians who are watching right now. Nowhere in scripture are we given an out in this regard. Nowhere does Paul declare, hashtag not my Caesar. Let that sink in. All right. Uh, those being governed, we are also called to engage. Now, right now, I'm going to attempt to bridge uh, from Paul's context here in the first century to our context in the 21st century. Uh, Paul did not share in some of the same privileges that we now possess today. And so admittedly, uh, I am attempting to adapt this to our context where we are in a democracy. We have a chance to influence, vote, all that good stuff. So uh, we are called to engage. And I think this comes threefold. Uh, Pray, inform, and vote. Pray, inform, vote. Pray for those in, in governmental authority inform ourselves uh, meaning you, you don't walk into the polls and just look to the person to the next year or you don't just call your parents right before you get there or friends say hey who are you voting for and it's like you actually inform yourself uh, and then you exercise that right to vote we at least partially share in that responsibility that lies on government leaders because we play a role in putting them there just as they are held accountable we will be held accountable Again, real talk, when you vote in favor of pro-choice laws because you've taken the bait that that is a woman's right, you will be held accountable for that. When you decide to sit at home and not vote in elections, you will be held accountable for that. Think about it this way. Uh, Jesus goes out of his way to put loving thy neighbor on the same playing field as loving God. In fact, he says, hey, the best your love for God is best illustrated, authenticated, and demonstrated by how well you love the people around you. One of the most practical ways that we have the opportunity to love our neighbor is helping to vote policies and people into office that will end up loving our neighbors well. And then the last call for those who are being governed, uh, we are called to moderate. In other words, have tempered expectations for the government. This goes back to where we started in the conversation around Christian nationalism, that the government's role is very limited. Our hope as followers of Jesus is not in government, good or bad. Even the best of human governments are just a temporary, imperfect, fallible fill-in for God. Our our hope isn't in politics because salvation does not come riding on the wings of Air Force One. It, It already came cradled in a manger. Our hope isn't in a donkey or an elephant, but in a lamb. Our primary work isn't in politics, but in the local church. We move the world most, not through the ballot box, but through prayer and submission and obedience to our risen King. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a good, 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 good God. We thank you for the freedoms that uh, we have in this country, for the opportunity that we do have to influence, to, to be salt and light in a very, very broken world. And God, I pray that we as a people, uh, as followers of Jesus, we, we would not take that responsibility lightly. I pray, God, that uh, in all of this, and again, politics has become so heated over these last couple of years. I pray, God, that we would not diminish uh, the impact that we could have on friends and family and neighbors and coworkers because of things we post and say in regards to politics, reminding ourselves that our ultimate allegiance does not lie to a particular political party or a candidate, uh, but rather to our, our risen Savior. We, we, we thank you, Jesus, that again, we are on the winning side, that death has already been defeated, that we don't really need to worry about who's in office and who's not in office, because again, the battle has already been won. You are good, you are kind, you are so patient with us. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.